Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Ladies, listen up. We have a new sponsor that's going to save you a lot of time and money. I'm excited to hear about this. They're called Simple Health, and as the name suggests, they're here to make your health care, well, simple, starting with online birth control. I'm all for this, but... I'm going to let you take it from here. I'll I'll be over here if you need me. (laughs) Yep, you heard that right. Birth control is getting a much-needed 21st century upgrade. With Simple Health, you can get your birth control prescribed online and delivered to your door for free. Whether you're already on birth control, looking to get back on, or want to try it for the first time, Simple Health is going to take care of you. Here's how it works. You know that form that you fill out at the doctor's office about your medical history, conditions, allergies, whatever? Simple Health is the same exact thing, but online. It's just way more convenient and comfortable. The process is comprehensive and feels very personalized. They actually ask for your preferences around birth control, and doctors help build the product and review every patient carefully to figure out if you're a good candidate for birth control and pick the right method for your needs. And just to be clear, Simple Health is not making their own birth control or anything like that. Their doctors only prescribe trusted and vetted brands of birth control, including pills and the patch and the ring. Best of all, Simple Health offers affordable care regardless of insurance. They do accept insurance, and luckily birth control is free with most insurance plans, so you can just pay nothing. You can't really beat that deal to use the service every month. And for those without insurance, pills start at $15 a month, which is still super affordable, and delivery is free for everyone. The prescription is usually $20, but our listeners can try Simple Health for free. Just go to simplehealth.com slash Diana or enter the code Diana at checkout. I want to mention that this isn't a replacement for routine evaluations by your primary care physician or your gynecologist. You should still get checkups as needed, but it is the most convenient and comfortable way to get your birth control. Again, try a better way to get birth control with Simple Health by going to simplehealth.com slash Diana, or just enter the code Diana at checkout. Give it a try and thank me later. Welcome to all my categorically curious friends. I am Diana Kander, and you are listening to Professional AF. This show documents my journey of creating a list of 49 different things that I want to improve about me, and each week talking to an expert to get some insights on what I should be doing differently. And hopefully the lessons that I'm learning each week are going to help you too. A big thank you to all of you who have reviewed the show online and shared it with your friends and coworkers. Our audience has nearly doubled in size from its first week, and it's all thanks to you. And believe me, you're going to want to share this show. This week, I sat down with Amy Morin, a psychotherapist turned accidental author. You're going to hear Amy's compelling, moving personal story, but I just want to brag on her for a second. Amy gave one of the most popular TEDx talks of all time, The Secret to Becoming Mentally Strong. It's been viewed more than 8 million times. She's a regular columnist at Forbes, Inc., Psychology Today, and a parenting expert for very well. Her articles reach more than 2 million readers each month. And she's the author of three best-selling books, the latest of which is called 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. 
And the interview is amazing because we spend about two thirds of the conversation talking about the specific habits mentally strong women should stop. And then the last third on the science of creating lasting habit change. Today, Amy's going to share how to keep self-doubt from sabotaging our goals, how the way we raise young girls has a big impact on their mental strength, how to deal with critical feedback, why women aren't getting the kind of feedback at work that they need and how to ask the right way, and the biggest mistake we all make trying to change a habit. Buckle your seatbelts and get ready for some powerful insights on this episode of Professional AF. Amy Morin, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really, really excited to chat with you about your newest book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. Now, this book is the third in a series that you've written. And I, I just want to start with, you, you have a really compelling personal story that put you on the path of writing all these books. So would you would you mind sharing that with us? Sure, I'd be happy to. I started as a therapist thinking that my uh, goal in life was just to take the knowledge I'd learned in college and teach it to the people that came into my therapy office. But my interest in mental strength became personal shortly after I started working. About a year into my work, my mother passed away suddenly and unexpectedly. And it really made me not only just dig deep and figure out, okay, how do you get through this? But it really made me just want to study the people that came into my therapy office with this new renewed interest. I really wanted to know how come some people go through tough times and they get stuck. They feel like they're never able to be happy again. And what makes other people go through really hard times and they come out on the other side feeling stronger than ever. So I started paying close attention to everybody that came into my office, uh, just for my own personal knowledge. And then uh, three years into my journey, uh, my 26 year old husband passed away suddenly and unexpectedly and found myself widowed. And fortunately, by then, one of the things I had realized about some of the strongest people that I had met, it wasn't about what they did. Sometimes it was more about what they didn't do. And so as I was going through grief and all this horrendous and terrible pain, I was really working on how do you give up certain things that are so tempting to do, like feel sorry for myself and worked hard on, on getting better and feeling like, okay, there's light at the end of the tunnel, but it took years to get there. And, but I was fortunate. A few years down the road, I found love again. I got remarried, moved to a new house, got a new job, and life was just starting to look up again when my father-in-law got diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I can just remember thinking, this is terrible. Why do I have to lose another loved one? How come when something good happens, something bad happens? It's not fair. And after a couple of days of thinking that way, I just remembered, okay, well, that's not helpful. Thinking that way is just going to make me feel worse. It's going to make me um, unable to, to really be present. I knew that we had maybe a couple of months left with my father-in-law and I didn't want to spend it hosting a pity party. So I sat down and I wrote a list of what mentally strong people don't do. And when I was done, I had a list of 13 things. And I would read over that list to remind myself, don't do this. As long as you don't do these 13 things, you'll be okay. And I found it really helpful. So after a few days, I thought, well, if this is helpful to me, maybe it would help somebody else. So I published it online, stepped away from my computer, never imagining what would happen next, but it went viral and like really viral. 50 million people read this article in a fairly short amount of time. 
Um, but nobody knew why I wrote it. They all thought, oh, you're a therapist and you know this stuff because it really didn't give any context about the personal story behind it. Um, but shortly after the article went viral, I had the opportunity to, uh, to go on the news and people, all these national news stations were calling me and asking me about it. And what nobody knew was by then it was about three days after my father-in-law passed away. And during the course of all of that, a literary agent had called and said, you should write a book. And so I decided to. So within the year, my book came out and I was able to explain the story behind the art behind the article that it wasn't just that I'd learned these things because I was a therapist. It was also that I'd learned them because I needed them. I come by this list honestly. I mean, you could have written a book that was called Why Me? <laughs> but right. instead, you wrote this incredible lesson for, for everybody to 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 take something away. And then after you wrote 13 things mentally strong people don't do, you wrote one for parents. And now you've just come out with 13 things mentally strong women don't do. Why do you think that women needed their own standalone book? Well, you know, it was interesting. After I wrote the first book, I kept getting questions from parents and they kept saying, how do we teach this to kids? And I wish I had learned this stuff earlier. So that led to the parenting book because I thought I could write a book for 10-year-olds, but no 10-year-old's going to read this book and then practice it on their own. Parents need to become mental strength right. coaches. But then I realized, you know, so many of the examples of mental strength uh, that we talk about often, they're Navy SEALs or these elite athletes, and they're often men. So I had a lot of questions from parents saying, how do we raise strong daughters? But I also had a lot of questions from women about what does this mean if I'm caring and I'm nurturing and I'm a really nice person and, you know, I don't run endurance uh, marathons? Is that how do I still be strong? What does that look like? And I realized, you know, I'd probably contributed to some of that by talking a lot about these extreme examples of people who put their bodies to the limits. And so I wanted to give an example. What does it look like to be a strong woman and to really acknowledge some of the bad habits that women tend to engage in? And we do it not necessarily because of our own fault, but society, you know, puts certain pressures on women that men don't experience. And we're raised in a slightly different way. And there are these gender norms that come into play and all sorts of things that sometimes set us up for these bad habits that can limit our potential. So I really wanted to write a book that said, let's recognize why we do these, these certain things. And let's talk about how do you break free from them? And how did you come up with the list of 13? Because the 13 things are different in this book than they were in the original book. Right. I really wanted to identify what is it that the habits that women engage in. And I knew from my own life, from the women I'd seen in my therapy office, a lot of these things. But I also wanted to look at the research behind it. Is it a stereotype that we think women do these things or is it true? I wanted to make sure anything I put in the book had some factual basis to it. And so I researched as much as I could to make sure it wasn't just an assumption that women engage in these bad habits. I wanted to know, do they really? And what's the what are the reasons behind it? And so uh, this book, I definitely did a lot of research, but I did a lot of uh, interviews too. I reached out to women across the country and the, the timing of the book was great because as I was writing it, the Me Too movement started to unfold and it gave me new opportunities to, to really embrace that and talk about, okay, now in today's world, how do you be a mentally strong woman in light of everything that's going on? Are there any examples of women who don't do all of these bad habits? Because I, I have to be honest, I'm a yes for like seven out of 13. So <laughs> that, that made me very nervous. I am over 50%. No, I think any woman who says, gosh, I never do any of those things is probably lying. I mean, the truth is we all do them sometimes. 
but once you become aware of them, then you can say, okay, here's how I, here's how I change some of these things. And for some of us, there's, you know, one or two that we do more often, but uh, no, I, I can't imagine that I would ever discover a woman or a person for that matter who says, no, I don't struggle with any of those things. And every once in a while, I do run into somebody who says, nope, I've never done any of those things. But I think that they're just more acting tough rather than being strong because <laughs> it takes courage to say, you know, I'm not perfect and I mess up sometimes. Well, I have a lot of courage. That wasn't one of the things <laughs> on your list, but I thought we could go through the list and maybe you could help me with some of the things that I struggle with on the list. Absolutely. Just, just to give people some insight about the book. Sure. Let's start with the first one on my list. Number four, a mentally strong woman don't let self-doubt stop them from reaching their goals. So you have an incredible amount of research all throughout the book. And I would love for you just to share with our listeners about how boys and girls are perceived very differently growing up. Yeah, when we really look at this study is about how do how do we raise kids differently? How do how do we teach girls uh to respond to to self doubt a little bit differently than boys, the the information I found was was kind of staggering. Just about some of the subtle messages that we give to girls in in teaching them that maybe if you uh, if you don't believe in yourself, you're not good enough. And the study I think in the whole book that really stood out to me the most is that we tend to teach girls that boys are the brilliant ones and that girls simply try hard. And so they did this study where they asked five-year-old kids, do you want to play a game for kids who are really, really smart or a game for kids who try really, really hard? And at age five, almost all the boys and all the girls say, I want to play the game for smart kids. But then they asked the kids when they're seven, do you want to play the game for really, really smart kids or the game for kids that try really, really hard? Almost all the boys still pick the game for smart kids. But then almost all the little girls pick the game for the kids who try hard. And, you know, we don't know exactly why this is, but when you think, well, what happens to kids between the ages of five and seven? Well, they start going to school. And who are a lot of the examples that we talk about in school about brilliant people, whether it's a scientist, an astronaut, a president, a lot of them are men. And so I suspect we're giving girls this subtle message that says, all right, it's great to be a woman and you can do all of these things, but it's really the men that succeed in the end. And the research that, it wasn't just this study, there's some other research that they did too, where they asked kids about, pick out the brilliant person and younger kids are more likely to pick somebody according to their own gender when they look at pictures of men and women. Older kids, when they pick out somebody who's brilliant, both boys and girls tend to pick out men. And this study kind of breaks my heart to think about that we're giving little girls that message that says, okay, you might try hard, but you're not necessarily the smart one. And when you say older kids, it's over six years old. So there's something that's happening around the age of five where people are locking those kinds of perceptions in. Right. And it's, you know, you know, when you look at little, little kids, three and four year olds, and they're, they're both equally optimistic. And then you think, gosh, just a couple of years later, and uh, something's happening that little girls aren't as confident about themselves as little boys. I love that study. I, there's so many interesting ones that you mentioned. Like, if you ask men and women to draw a picture of a leader, both men and women will draw a picture of a man. Right. Isn't that interesting that that's just sort of our assumption about who, what a leader looks like. And so I think it's just so deeply ingrained in us. We don't even recognize that we're doing it. Or when they ask questions about 
who's a doctor and who's a nurse. We assume the man's the doctor and the woman's the nurse. Just all of these stereotypes that we get sucked into and don't even recognize that it's a problem. But I think that it's just affecting us deeply at our core and how how we view our potential and how these little girls are growing up thinking about what they're actually going to be able to do in life versus what the boys are able to do. So one of the studies later on is how it manifests itself is that women start underestimating their abilities, but men overestimate their abilities while in these research studies, they're performing the exact same on the tasks at hand. Yeah, it's quite interesting to see how it plays out. You know, even on like LinkedIn, when they ask women to list their skills, women sort of downplay their success and they don't list nearly as many as the men, even if they have the same amount of experience. Or when they give them tests and they say, how sure are you that you're going to score well? Men tend to say, you know, I'm going to do great. Whereas women say, I'm not sure about this. And then even during the test, if they ask the women and the men the question, how do you think you did on that answer? Women often second guess themselves and they'll change their answer, even if they had it right. Whereas men become more (laughs) confident in in how they answer the question. Women tend to become less confident. Like I said, this was one of the big ones that jumped out at me. So I've been waiting to start a podcast for over five years. And in that five-year period, I kept telling myself that I didn't have a big enough audience, that I wasn't ready, I wasn't going to be good enough. And now that I've launched, I pretty much spend the rest of the day after each interview thinking about what I should have said what I what should have asked. So how can I deal with this topic? How can I stop letting this be an issue for me? So I think the first thing is just recognizing it and thinking, okay, how does this play out in my life? And then to, uh, to take a look, you know, kind of leads into the overthinking chapter too, because women, we tend to do that a lot more than men. We rehash conversations that already happened and we replay things in our head. And so to figure out, is this, is this helpful or not? It's helpful to reflect, maybe to get better, to think about it to the extent that you can improve, but it's not helpful when you're beating yourself up thinking, oh, I shouldn't have said that, or I I didn't ask that question. I'm such an idiot. And so really just take a look. Is my thinking helpful or is it hurtful? And if it's hurtful to stop doing it, which is hard to do, sometimes it requires (laughs) you to consciously say, I'm going to get up and do something different to get my mind off of this. I'm not going to sit here and think about something that makes me feel worse. I'm not going to ruminate on it. Uh, And sometimes then it's about, okay, am I problem solving? Because problem solving and ruminating are two different things. If you're actively solving a problem, how can I, how can I do this better? What do I want to change? That's helpful. But just replaying something over and over isn't, isn't a good idea. Right. And so, and I think a lot of us forget, we think that somehow enough worrying or enough rehashing will somehow fix it or make it better or prevent (laughs) something bad from happening, but it won't. And so just, and it's also important, just embrace the fact that you're not perfect. Remind yourself that uh, thinking too much isn't going to to be helpful. It's all about taking action and reminding yourself too, that you don't have to be a hundred percent confident. Sometimes we look around at other people and we think, oh, everyone else is so confident and yet I'm not, there must be something wrong with me. But the truth is everyone experiences self-doubt and it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It becomes a bad thing when we fight it, when we get caught up in thinking, I shouldn't feel like this. This is horrible. This means I'm not competent. But studies will show you just embrace a little bit of self-doubt. Overconfidence can be really, really dangerous because it makes you not try as hard. But if you just embrace, okay, I have a little bit of self-doubt, you'll probably try harder. You might put in more effort and you might actually perform better. So it's a good idea for me to get a coach on asking questions or to discuss it with somebody as opposed to just 
reflecting on it over and over again in my head. Yeah, that can be a wonderful thing because just hearing feedback from someone else might give you some different ideas, a different perspective, instead of just replaying the same things in your head over and over. And you know, the ultimate goal can be how do I how do I become more like a coach to myself? If somebody else were coming to me with this problem, what would I likely say to them? And if you can distance yourself from it a little bit, it takes some of the emotion out of it, which is uh, what often gets us caught up when you're feeling bad about something, when you're nervous. We tend to think in a way that keeps us stuck in that emotional state. So you want to break free from that. And if talking to a coach or running it past somebody else helps you gain some a little bit different perspective, that's a great idea. Yeah, I love it. If you run a creative business, or for that matter, a totally unoriginal one, you know how to make your clients look good. But if you're struggling with tedious administrative tasks, that's pretty much all administrative tasks, let HoneyBook do the work and make you look good. If the thought of all that admin work is overwhelming, HoneyBook is here to help you get your plan off the ground. HoneyBook is an online business management tool that lets you control your client communication, bookings, contracts, and invoices all in one place. And folks, don't let that one place be a spreadsheet. That's not going to cut it. If you're a creative freelancer or small business owner, HoneyBook helps you stay organized with custom templates and automation tools. You can even use HoneyBook to consolidate services that you already use, like QuickBooks, Google Suite, and MailChimp. Over 75,000 photographers, designers, event professionals, and other entrepreneurs have saved hundreds to thousands of hours every year. It's your business just better with HoneyBook. This ad always makes me hungry. (laughs) Right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off your first year with promo code DIANA. Payment is flexible, and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. 50% is a lot. Like, people should just listen to this podcast with a pencil and paper and just get down these. I mean, they're getting a lot of really good notes just for their life and their profession, Mm -hmm. but also for the ads. I bet right now they're hungry, too, because all this talk of honey. (laughs) Raw HoneyBook. Just go to HoneyBook.com and use promo code Diana for 50% off your first year. Get paid faster and work smarter with HoneyBook.com, promo code Diana. Number six, strong women don't avoid tough challenges. Now, this is a really interesting problem because I do these workshops on curiosity where I basically promise people that I can help them make their biggest goals come true. And when this workshop is women only, I usually have a really, really hard time getting people to even pick a big, hairy, audacious goal. So why won't many professional strong women even pick audacious goals to reach? And how can I help them through this? Interesting. Uh, so, oh, first I want to know when there's men in the room, do women pick bigger goals then? Or That's really interesting. When there's men in the room, everybody just, you know, shouts out what their goal is. And I don't really do a big accounting of whether it's mostly men or women shouting them out, but it's very obvious when people aren't raising their hand and I pick on them and I say like, what's a crazy thing you'd like to try? And they say, I don't know. I'm just, I'm good. You know? Interesting. Yeah. So and the research supports that sort of a thing when women are given the option, Hey, do you want to tackle this tough challenge? A lot of times women talk themselves out of it and they'll say no. But when somebody says, no, you have to tackle this challenge, they often perform just as well, if not better than men. And so if you give a test and you say, uh, you know, here you go, it's optional, only answer the ones you know, women are much less likely to answer questions that they are hesitant on, whereas men will answer a lot more. 
So just recognizing that I think is really important and acknowledging that, you know, women will, will only move forward when they feel like they have a certain level of confidence or when they feel like they're going to be successful. So I think in your in your situation, maybe you talk about that, just that very fact that men often create these huge challenges for themselves and then they take action, they go for it. But as women, our tendency is is to hang back a little bit, to think, I have no business doing this because other maybe it goes back to the idea that boys are brilliant and girls only try hard. So you think boys are the ones that should do this. Um so I think sometimes just addressing addressing that and then thinking about how it plays out in our own lives. How do we tend to stay in our comfort zones? What What is it that keeps us from branching out? I think a lot of us women are afraid to live a big, bold life. We kind of want to blend in or we have been taught it's bad to be an attention seeker or it's you just you don't want to be too too bold. You don't want to be out there doing stuff and, and showing off all of these sorts of scripts that play in our head that prevent us from, from making bold moves and setting these huge goals and thinking that you have the, the worth and the ability to reach them. I think that's really, really great advice. And any, any research that you've seen of, of what can help women get past that point or, or just acknowledging that it's happening and kind of pushing them to, to set these goals? Yeah. So one of my uh, favorite exercises is to say, okay, if you want to you want to be brave, you have to act brave. Sometimes as women, especially, we do things in the opposite order. We think, well, I'm going to wait until I feel confident to take this bold step. But that's not how it works. You don't suddenly get a burst of confidence by sitting at home on the couch. You (laughs) have to get out there and do stuff. And the more that you do, the more confident you become, the more that you're able to see that you're capable, that you're competent, that you you can do things, you can overcome challenges. So I always encourage women to say, you know, if you felt confident, if you felt brave, what would you be doing? And then when they can fill in that blank, then I say, well, that's your answer. Go out and do those things right now. And even if you don't feel like you are able to do it, do it anyway. And every time you do that, even if they don't succeed, it gives them a chance to see that failing isn't the end of the world, that they can handle being uncomfortable, that it's, being insecure isn't necessarily the the a sign that you shouldn't move forward and that if you're sad, you're disappointed, those things are okay. And, but a lot of times women succeed, they set these goals and they, they succeed. And then it gives them more confidence to set new goals and it sort of gets the ball rolling in the right direction. I love it. So rather than saying, why don't you set a goal? I, I start with the end. Okay. You've just done something and it's making you feel extremely empowered and confident. Now, what was that goal that you set for yourself? And then I secretly make them do it. Right. That would be a great way to, to turn that around and phrase it to say, if you if you felt really confident in yourself, what would you be doing? And then they sort of fill in the blank. And then you say, well, that's that's what you need to go out and do right now. OK. Number nine is that mentally strong women don't let others limit their potential. And you have this great quote to start the chapter from Eleanor Roosevelt, which is that nobody can make you feel inferior without your consent. And I read that and I started laughing because I feel like I give a lot of people consent. So one of the many reasons that I was afraid to start the podcast and try to help a lot of people is because I was afraid that people were going to say mean things to me on the Internet. And I I just found that very intimidating. Yes. So any advice? (laughs) Yeah. You know, in research, we'll find that that women tend to experience criticism on a deeper level than men do, that men are much more likely to brush it off. Women, when we're criticized, we feel like we've been rejected in our heads. It sort of plays out the exact same way as if we were flat out rejected, whereas men treat 
criticism and rejection is two separate things in their brains. And, and so realizing, okay, criticism isn't the end of the world. And that if somebody puts you down, that's, that's their opinion. It doesn't make it a fact. Because I think all of us can probably identify times in our life where somebody has said, you're not going to be able to do that, or you, uh, you aren't ready for this, or you shouldn't do something. And that script plays in our head over and over again. And that's, those are the things that you remember so that when you apply for a new job or you want to try something new, you just remember those words that, that sting and it makes you second guess whether or not you should do something. So it's really important to just realize, okay, somebody doesn't like what you're doing. That's their opinion. It's not a fact. And that their opinion doesn't carry more weight than your opinion or, or the positive comments you get. Because I deal with this too. I get a lot of positive feedback from people now that I have books out there, but I get some negative ones too. And the ones that I tend to think about more often are probably the negative ones. And I have to just remind <laughs> myself, but no, for, for every uh, unkind comment I get, I get a lot more positive ones. Um, so it just becomes about realizing that, knowing that that's somebody's opinion, that you don't have to please everybody. And and just recognizing, well, what limitations have you accepted in life? Maybe somebody said you couldn't amount to anything. Have you let that really limit your life? And how do you want to break free from that? Yeah, one of the pieces of research you cite is that women, when rejected, will just stop trying. Like, they'll just stop applying for higher jobs or or trying new things because they really internalize that rejection. Yes. And you think about any, say, successful person. How many times have they likely been rejected in their life? Probably dozens for important things. And whether it's an author who said, you know, I got rejected dozens of times for my books or somebody who eventually went on to run a company, but they got rejected repeatedly as they tried to climb the ladder. And so I think it's so important for us as women to know that rejection isn't the end of the line. Just because somebody says, I don't think you're ready for this, or I don't think you can do it, doesn't mean you shouldn't try again. It stings, it hurts, it's uncomfortable, it's embarrassing, but but you can handle it and you can get up and, and try again because that's the only way that you'll move forward is if you trust that you can tolerate being rejected and that you're willing to keep trying even if you do get rejected. The advice I give other people is that if you don't have people criticizing you online, that means not enough people are reading your book or listening to your podcast. It just means the reach is very, very low. Yeah. But it still hurts. It does. It does. But I think keeping that, that helps keep it in perspective that if you write an article and 10,000 people are going to read it, there's a certain percentage that you're going, that are going to really like it probably. And you'll attract some, some more fans or followers, but there's also uh, a percentage of people that are probably not going to like what you wrote. Uh, but I think even more importantly than all of that too, is the feedback that you get sometimes has very little to do with you. Sometimes it's more of a reflection of the person and studies will show that, that the feedback that we give other people is often more about how we feel about ourselves. So whether we give out an insult or we say something about somebody's work to cut it down, it might be that we're having a bad day or that we actually feel bad about ourselves and has much less to do with the other person's work. And that's why when you put something out on the internet, you have no idea a lot of times who these strangers are who are commenting or replying to you. It might just be somebody who's had a really bad day and they want to take it out on you. It has nothing to do with your writing or, or this piece of content that you created. Well, what about feedback that you get at work? Because one of the interesting studies that you cite is that women are usually given vague feedback on their reviews while men are giving specific ways to improve. 
So how does this affect women at work? How does it Im- impact them and what can they do about it? Yeah, it's interesting when they looked at performance reviews and even the positive ones for women would say stuff like, you had a great year, versus the the comments on the men's performance reviews would say, you did a great job and here's what you did well. And it would list the specific things, but it would also often include advice about what they could do better. Keep learning about this one thing or keep working on sharpening this specific skill. So I think as women, it's important to know exactly what you did well and exactly what you can still work on. And you may have to ask those questions, uh, which can be kind of awkward and uncomfortable to say, I'm glad you think I had a great year, but what specifically did I do well? And what specifically can I work on? Because, uh, you know, sometimes we just want to take that those kind words and run with it. If somebody says you you did a great job, we want to say thank you and then get up and leave and sort of quit while we're ahead. <laughs> Don't say anything else. Right. And, you know, and it's tough to ask those questions. Like, I'm glad I'm doing great, but what else can I do better? But when you ask those kinds of questions, that's when you'll actually grow. And that's how you can help yourself to to take steps in moving the right into the right direction rather than just uh, running at the first sign of, of something positive or accepting something vague like you, you did OK this year. Good work. You know, just really try to try to ask those questions to say, what else what else can I do and how how can I improve? Okay, number 13 of things that mentally strong women don't do, they don't downplay their success. So I really like the how to take a compliment section. Um, I was really, really bad at this. And my husband would tell me that I was so bad that I was actually insulting the person that was giving me a compliment. When somebody was like, you're really good at this. I'd be like, you're stupid. You don't even know how to judge things. Right. So why is this important and how can we do it better? You know, it's really common for us women when somebody says I did a great job in that meeting today we kind of minimize it we're likely to say oh it was nothing or even if somebody compliments us on that's a great shirt you're wearing we're likely to say oh this thing I bought it for ten dollars last week and you're right that sometimes it's almost like insulting the person that gave us the compliment rather than just accepting it we have a hard time saying thank you because we think it sounds arrogant, or sometimes we think we're undeserving, or we think that by saying thank you, it somehow makes us sound like a know-it-all, or we're saying, yeah, I know, and, and that would be narcissistic, or, uh, or we sometimes give a compliment back to when somebody says, hey, you did a great job today. We turn it around and say, well, you did a really good job today. And while there's nothing wrong with giving compliments back, you don't, you're not obligated to, to do that. And sometimes we do it because we don't feel good about ourselves. We think I'm not deserving of of kind words. Sometimes we do it, again, because we don't want to be arrogant or sound like we're a narcissist. And sometimes it just doesn't quite match up to the way that we see ourselves. And somebody says, you did a great job in that presentation. You're such a good communicator, but you think you're a horrible public speaker. It's really uncomfortable to hear that feedback. And so we (laughs) will say something that sort of uh, tries to even the playing field by saying, oh, I... I stumbled over all my words or uh, nobody was listening anyway, or we just come back with some sort of a a response a lot that will somehow make it seem like we're not as good as the other person thinks that we are. And that doesn't do anybody any good. It doesn't. It doesn't. And studies will show that we're less likely to accept compliments, even when they come from other women, especially that uh, in general, women don't like to just say thank you, but especially when it comes from another woman. And I think that we take it, take away that other woman's ability to cheer us on. And it makes them less likely to want to hand out compliments when we're not 
accepting them graciously, but it also affects us when we're always deflecting kind words. So I think one of the best ways to own your success is to just practice saying thank you when somebody gives you a compliment. You don't have to add anything to it. Just say thank you. And it'll feel uncomfortable at first, but after a while, it gets to feel more comfortable. I think that's great advice. And I would add, having practiced saying thank you, don't shake your head no while you're saying thank you and try to make eye contact, even though that might be difficult to do while you're saying it. Those are great points because I think our body language speaks volumes. And sometimes we do stare at the floor because you're just cringing on the inside. Or as you say, you don't even notice you're shaking your head no as you are. The words coming out of your mouth don't match. So absolutely be aware of what your body language is saying. Support for Professional AF comes from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website. Choose a template you love and customize it by adding your own text, images, and videos. Don't let a long, complicated process of building a website slow you down from launching your idea or trying something new. This is a quality product that gets something up really quickly. You don't be that person who I've met who's like, I have this amazing idea, and in five months when I finish the website, I'm going to tell people about it. That's not a good idea. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want. You want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog, launch an online store, or create an event. Share everything in a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. You sound like a real pro when when you read that, like like you have website design skills. Uh, well, I Google stuff, and this this part ended in Google, and <laughs> so I I felt confident about the landing. Wix has all the tools you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this podcast. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their website, so create yours today. Get started now by going to Wix.com, that's W-I-X.com slash professional A-F to get 10% off. Don't waste any more time waiting in line to send mail and packages. Avoid any confusion around finding the best postal rates for your business. With SendPro Online from Pitney Bowes, you can send packages and mail without leaving your office right from your desk for as low as $4.99 a month. Drew sent his first ever package this week. He, he sent fan mail to Alberto Mondesi, the shortstop for the Royals. He made these really cute bead, I don't know, coasters yeah. for him. Yeah, they were coasters of Mondesi that he sent to Mondesi. Adorable. And for being a professional AF listener, you'll receive a free 30-day trial to get started. As an added bonus, you'll also receive a free 10-pound scale shipped right to your door to help you accurately weigh your packages. Save time and money no matter what you send. From packages to overnights and letters, just click send and save with this new offer for SendPro Online. Starting at just $4.99 a month, you can print shipping labels and stamps right from your own printer, easily compare rates using their online software, gain access to special USPS savings for letters and priority mail shipping, plus track all your shipments and get email notifications when they've arrived. So we send this thing to Mondesi, and three days later, Mondesi hits a two-run home run in a game we're watching, and True goes, do you think he got my thing? And I'm like, I think that's why you hit a home run. And the kid, just he just lit up. It was the coolest thing. He's like, next time he sees us, do you think he's going to give me a thumbs up? <laughs> yeah, he does. I, I was like, sure, because I figured like <laughs> my chances of getting called on that are pretty low. Go to pb.com slash professional to access the special offer and get a free 30-day trial plus a free 10-pound scale to get started. That's pb.com slash professional. Experience the better way to ship, 
with a free trial of SendPro Online from Pitney Bowes. Now, is everything on this list something that you used to work on with patients when you were a therapist? It is. They're all definitely things that I worked on with other people, but uh, you know, they're all things that I've definitely struggled with at one time or another in my life. And I can say I come by it, um, all of these things, and can relate to them uh, in my own life. And even though I've written books on mental strength, it's not that I don't still struggle with some of these things. I certainly do. Okay. So what's, what's the toughest one for you on the list? Um, I think probably number 13, downplaying my success. I was a therapist who uh, wrote a viral article and then became an author. And so for some reason, I think sometimes I just feel like uh, almost like I got lucky in writing a viral article and that I am not really an author or I didn't set out to do this. And so when people will compliment me on my uh, marketing skills, like, gosh, you've sold a lot of books or great, great work in, in coming up with this stuff. And it's, it's uncomfortable because I don't, even though it's been about, I guess, five years since I wrote the article, it's like my mind, it takes my mind a while to sort of catch up with, with where I am. I sort of still see myself as as, as, a, as a therapist in a rural area who's just meeting with people one-on-one. And now I get emails from people <laughs> all around the world, my book's in 35 languages, and from other people who are you know, thanking me for the work that I did. And, and it just takes a while, I think, for our brains to catch up with with where we are and to come to terms with, okay, this is where I'm at now, and it's okay to just be grateful for uh, for the compliments that I get and to just say thank you. You need to learn thank you in 35 different languages. That's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just think if you had a wall of it in all those languages, it would remind you of how awesome right. this journey has been. I'm going to do that now. Thank you for the suggestion. That's a great idea. <laughs> Okay, now you wrote this article that I found online about how change doesn't happen overnight, how it happens in five stages. And everything that we're talking about is a really big habit that people do on a regular basis. I mean, you you write about these things, but you, you're still doing them. Uh, I, I'm batting over 50% on your list. So uh, clearly these are difficult things to overcome. So can we talk about how people change their habits and walk through these five stages of how this happens and kind of talk about where does this book fit in versus you giving keynote speeches or you have online classes or maybe even therapy. Like, I'd just love to get your thoughts on, on that. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest mistakes we make is we think that you just sort of come to this conclusion that you're going to change your life and then you do it and then that's it. But that's not really how people change. Uh, and I think if you just looked at New Year's resolutions, for example, on December 31st, a lot of times people come up with some sort of declaration of how they're going to change their life, whether they say, I'm going to hit the gym more, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to uh, drink more water, whatever it is. Uh, they declare that on December 31st, on January 1st, they start doing it. But we know most New Year's resolutions wear off within a week or two and, and are never to be worked on again, at least not for a while. And so uh, because people aren't ready to change, before you change, you have to be ready. There are some steps you have to go through before you actually take the action. And then once you do take the action, you're not done. There's still more work to do. So the five steps are this. It starts with pre-contemplation. This is when you think you don't even have a problem. Maybe your doctor's giving you warnings about your eating habits, or you have friends or family members who are concerned about something that you're doing, but you don't necessarily see it's a problem yet. Or you say, all this self-criticism is really just making me a harder worker. Yes. Yes. And so that would be sort of that denial phase. Sometimes I'll have people come into my therapy office because they're 
maybe they got caught uh, drunk driving and they're and they've been mandated to come to counseling and they come in and they say, I don't know why I'm here. I don't actually have a problem. They're pre-contemplative. And that really gives me a guide of how I'm going to work with this person. They're not ready to take action yet. So they don't see it as a problem. So then my goal is to raise their awareness, which is the next step, which is contemplation. Stage two, which is where you start to weigh the options. Do I really want to make this change? Is this really a problem? Might I want to do something different? And it could come down to, say, somebody who thinks, all right, I'm not taking care of my health. The consequences are uh, maybe I don't feel very good. Maybe I'm overweight. Maybe I, I sleep too much or I don't have any energy during the day. But they're also thinking about the, the other side. Well, if I make these changes, I might be uncomfortable. I might be hungry. I might be tired even more because I have to go to the gym. It's sort of when you're weighing the, starting to weigh some of the pros and cons of making a change. And then at some point, if you decide, all right, the the consequences of staying inactive are more than the consequences of, of taking action, and you make the decision, okay, I'm going to make a change, you move into stage three, which is about preparation. And this is a really important stage, but a lot of people want to fly through this. Once they say, okay, I'm going to make this commitment to do something different, they skip over it, jump into action, and they start doing, but they haven't spent enough time sort of planning planning things out. So if we went back to the New Year's resolution example, somebody who says, I'm going to go to the gym five days a week. Well, during the preparation stage, you really need to think, how am I going to do that? Is it a feasible goal? Do I have time to do that every day? And what am I going to have to give up? Whether it's time in front of the TV or time with your family or uh, time to spend with your friends, you have to give something up. And just the preparation stage is about recognizing that. It's about thinking through the, the problem solving and the practical aspects of how am I going to get to the gym? Do I go before work or after work? Do I have gym clothes? Do I need new sneakers? Whatever it is, it's all about preparing and, and setting yourself up with a really good plan during this stage can definitely increase your chances of success. And finally, the fourth stage is where you actually take action. So all that stuff that you did while you were preparing and planning starts to, to come into play and you start to do something different. You hit the gym, you quit eating so much junk food, you decide, all right, I'm going to... Um, go to work with a different attitude today so that I can apply for this promotion. Whatever it is, just start putting those things into play. And that's another place where a lot of people quit. They think, great, I, I've gotten it. I'm working on this. No problem. But the truth is that there's a fifth stage, which is about maintaining the action steps that you take. Because when we start out making a new change in our life, we're usually quite motivated. We're excited about it. We're happy. We're thinking this is going to be fun. But we know that that wears off within a few days, within a few weeks, your motivation goes downhill, you start to run into more obstacles, it becomes harder to maintain it. So this stage is really about planning for any pitfalls that you might experience. It's about monitoring, okay, how am I doing, figuring out how am I going to track this. And sometimes it's just really simple changes that will help you stay on track. For example, if we went back to the, the gym example of somebody who says, I'm going to work out more often. Studies will show if you have a calendar hanging on the wall and you just put a check mark on the calendar on the days you go to the gym and you do nothing else other than just put the check marks there, you're much more likely to keep hitting the gym. It just gives you a reminder of your progress and how you're doing. And so during the maintenance stage, that's what it's all about is figuring out how am I going to monitor my progress and what kind of pitfalls am I likely to experience? And then if you make a mistake to know what am I going to do about that, maybe you uh, Maybe you decide, all right, three days in a row you took off from the gym. 
well, now what? Are you going to convince yourself there's no sense in going back on day four because you uh, aren't making any progress or you've completely messed up? Or are you going to recover from that? Or if you have a week where you've got all these other activities going on and you can't go to the gym, what are you going to do instead? Or how are you going to recover from that? So this stage is just really important if you want to maintain the action that you that you took and how do you uh, maintain it over the long haul so that it's more like a marathon and not just a sprint. And so when people come into my therapy office, that's one of the first things I would want to do is really look at what what stage of change are they in? Because that affected how I was going to work with them. Do I need to keep talking about the pros and cons? Do I need to help them with, with taking, with maintaining this change that they've made? Or do I need to help them prepare more for this big step that they're going to take? And I see it with readers with the book too. Sometimes I'll get an email from somebody who says, my mother bought me this book. She thinks I need to read it. And then I know this person is pre-contemplative. They really have no <laughs> desire to read the book and make any changes. But I also get emails from people who say, you know, a few years ago, I, I was struggling with these problems in my life. I made some changes. And your book just sort of reinforced the changes that I made. And then I know this person's in the maintenance stage. They're still working on self-improvement and still looking for strategies that can help them maintain a change that they made a few years ago. So, and I think for all of us, whenever we're going to make any change in our life, it can be super helpful to to just really assess what, what stage of change am I in and what does it make sense to do next so that I can make a change that's really going to stick. Well, now when you're giving keynotes and, and with the book, I feel like you are in the business of trying to create change in others. So w- what is kind of the role of the book and what are you hoping to accomplish like when you're giving a speech? In, in a one hour period. And I ask because I, I give one hour keynotes and I really want to change behavior too. So I'm just trying to figure out from an expert what's what's possible. Yeah. So when I'm giving a, a keynote and I know that I've got one hour and I may never see most of these people again, I want to give them enough information just to sort of raise their consciousness of, you know, mental strength is important. Here's why it's important. Here are some of the pitfalls if you don't have it. And based on that, here's some simple strategies you can do. I want people to leave with action steps. Here are some exercises, some things that you can go home and practice right now, but I don't want to overwhelm them with too much information. We know that when people listen to a speech, they're likely to remember 1% of what they heard. And so if I overload them with 101 ideas, they're not likely to go home and do any of them. So before they leave, I want them all to identify just one thing that they're going to do differently. And my hope is that once they go home, that they'll remember that one thing, that they'll change that one thing, and that it will create some sort of a snowball effect so that they get some momentum going and saying, well, if I can change that, I can also change this. And that they have more confidence in moving forward about their skills and their ability to to keep creating positive change. I think that's a great, great uh, technique because... Uh, all the research shows that if you can just change your behavior 1%, like a lot of people try to change things in significant ways, but if you can create uh, a 1% change, then you're m- more likely to create another 1% change later on. Yes. And I think we have, a lot of us have this, you know, sort of go bigger or, or go home attitude where we think, all right, starting on January 1st, I'm going to change my entire life. <laughs> Five days a week. All of these things we're going to do, and then it's just not sustainable to to make all of these changes at once, or people get overwhelmed, or sometimes readers with my book say, "What do I do? I do all thirteen of these things, and I don't know what to do." I said, "Just start with one. Just pick one thing and and start with that." And 
just amazing when people start making these small small changes in their life, how much momentum it builds so that they can feel like, okay, now I'm ready to tackle something else. There's a habits researcher whose name is BJ Fogg, and I've seen videos of his classes where somebody's like trying to learn how to meditate. And on the first day, their job is to sit in a chair for 30 seconds. And they're like, this is silly. Why would I do this? And then the next day, their job is to sit in a chair for a minute. And then they just keep building on it. And they're much more likely to sustain that than if they're asked to, you know, do a seven day silent meditation retreat. Right. And I think it's interesting that we that we often go from zero to 100 thinking, OK, I'm going to I'm going to do something different. Or we make assumptions that when we set the goal really high, we think it doesn't work. So then we quit way too early. I'll have people that will come in and say uh, therapy's not working. And I'll say, well, what, what makes you think it's not working? And they'll say, well, you know, I've been here for three weeks and my depression isn't better. And I'll have to explain to them it's not going to happen in three <laughs> weeks. You know, if you've been depressed for 10 years, three weeks is not going to be enough to, to rewire your brain and undo all of this stuff. It's going to take some time um, and really set those expectations, because otherwise we live in this world where we get so many things instantly whether you order something online or, you know, you're getting fast food somewhere. We, we want things to happen. We want it to happen now. And change in our lives just doesn't happen at that same pace. It takes a long time to change your life, and it's a slow process. And that's okay to enjoy the journey and to just really focus on the small steps you can take. And over time, you can make incredible progress. So what are some common first steps that people take after reading the book if people are thinking about what to do? So, you know, I always encourage people pick the pick the one thing that you're most guilty of and and really identify what are the steps you can take to to change that habit. And for some people it's about goes back to the very basics of what are the pros and cons of continuing this habit because you wouldn't do it unless you got something out of it. So, somebody who uh you know feels sorry for themselves, which is in my first book, a pity party, maybe it gives you permission to not do anything. Maybe it gets you attention. Maybe it um, gets you out of having to go out with your friends because you just don't want to. There's probably a whole list of things that you get out of it. But then to ask yourself, well, what, are you, what is it costing you? And just making a list about that and then saying, well, and what would I have to give up? If I give this thing up, what's going to happen to my life? And to have realistic expectations. Sometimes people set goals for themselves and then they expect that they're going to be happy and healthy and attractive and all of these things that aren't realistic. But when you give up this one thing, what's what can you realistically expect? And then what's one exercise you can do? Um, my book, every chapter, I try to make sure it's got plenty of exercises for people, real life things that you can start practicing right now. And so I say, just start with one. And some of them only take maybe two minutes to do, and you can do them right from your chair. So just pick one thing that you want to start doing differently and and build on that. Well, in the spirit of 1% change, and your goal of now learning how to say thank you in 35 languages. You don't happen to speak Russian by any chance. I don't speak Russian, no. <laughs> okay, well, I speak Russian. So I'm going to teach you how to say thank you in Russian. And then we're going to do the sign off and you're going to you're going to use your new Russian word. Oh, excellent. Okay, so you say spasiba. S-P-A-S-I-B-O. Spasiba. Yes, that's, that's very good. All right, you ready? I think so. <laughs> if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Amy, this has been an awesome conversation on how change happens and the 13 things that mentally strong women don't do. Thank you so, so much for your time and for coming on the show. Placebo.
Oh my gosh, you're a natural. I love it. This is going to be a fun adventure for you. (laughs) Amy, sincerely, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. Are you feeling mentally stronger already? I know I am. I learned so much from reading Amy's book and getting a chance to talk to her directly. If you want to head start on the book that I'm reading for next week or to talk about the show or how you're applying the takeaways or to even suggest potential guests or books for the future, then you've got to join the private Facebook group for this show. It's called Professional AF Podcast Insiders, and it's a large community of curiosity commandos like yourself. And please don't forget to review the show online. Every time somebody submits a review, I immediately attempt a handstand. That's right. That's my physical goal for the year. Well, it was my physical goal for last year, but I didn't meet it. So now it's my goal for this year. So your review is going to help me get the practice that I need to reach my goal for 2019. And make sure that you're subscribed to the show so you don't miss a single episode. We have some really powerful shows coming up and I wouldn't want you to miss them. I am Diana Kander with your weekly reminder that curiosity is your superpower. No matter your goal or your challenge, asking better questions is going to get you better results. I'll talk to you next week.